on my uh, bookshelf in my office is a fairly slim volume entitled Firestorm. And it documents by combining several different accounts of real situations the events and attitudes which lead up to and produce a devastating church split. It describes in detail the conflagration itself, which is the actual split as well as what precedes it. And it tells about the aftermath as the flames die down and the smoke begins to clear. Finally, it discusses the rebuilding process which must occur if the church is ever to be healthy again, which often never happens uh, because people are left shell-shocked. They never seem to recover from their wounds, and the advancement of the kingdom of God in that place is brought to a standstill. The book itself is rich in emotional content, as it describes the anguish and the anger of those caught up in it. And you yourself can feel their pain in your own being, especially if you've ever been uh, through anything like it. The elders here at this church have read this book, and it really is an eye-opener both to the human dynamics which are possible even in a church setting, and I suppose in all other settings too, but also to the spiritual warfare which the enemy of our soul is engaged in as he targets God's people and especially healthy churches. What becomes obvious as you read this book is that that firestorm need never have happened in the first place. The people involved didn't start out uh, on different sides. They were all on the same team those who had become uh, implacable enemies started out as friends. The issues which grew so large and which divided them and on which each side took their stand often began as small things, almost nothings that friends or even acquaintances could share a laugh about. (laughs) The issues um, seemed to be almost innocent foibles when they first were noticed. And yet, they somehow became deadly, serious, dividing friends, families, Christian from Christian, ultimately leading to the split. At any point uh, early on, those issues could have been dealt with in a healthy and friendly way, honoring God and Christ in the process and causing barely a ripple in the peaceful relations of Even when things began to get more serious, that destructive blaze could have been avoided by actively seeking the face of God in prayer and by open and honest communication and seeking to love others before and above our own interests. In the absence of such things, the pressure built and it reaches a kind of a critical mass and the explosion ensues fire storm envelops the church and the fallout continues for years. Looking back on every one of those situations, the failure of leadership was always monumental. At the time, every action, or more likely the lack of action on the part of the pastors and other leaders, seemed so reasonable and so simple, but it was actually a 
ceding of territory to the enemy in a battle which should have been effortlessly won. They ignored problems, which is always easy to do, almost pretending that they didn't exist. Or explaining them away in their own minds as such little things, and maybe they were, in a sense, little things, but then there were other little things. And then they began to ignore the people who talked about those problems, sometimes dismissing them as troublemakers instead of seeing them as people in need of a shepherd who had uh, concerns and, and simply wanted to be heard and reassured. And it is true, there are those who are just never happy, whom you can never satisfy, but without care, their discontent will spread. Until one day, the leaders begin looking at some Christians, some brothers and sisters in Christ, some they look at as good and supportive, the faithful followers, sometimes even the faithful few, while the others they begin seeing as failing spiritually, people who they thought are blind to God's hand as those getting in the way of the progress of the faith. Of course, the reason the leadership at Why Bible Church has read this book is because we are in a spiritual war, even when it doesn't seem like it. Satan is a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. And while Satan hates anything associated with the name of Christ, ineffectual churches are not much of a concern to him, but a church which is advancing the kingdom of God is in his eyes an enemy which must be cut down. Why Bible Church is such a church? You know, we may be small, but we are doing our part in advancing the kingdom of God. You only need to see the number of kids who go to church, uh, children's church, on a Sunday morning. Or come to Awana on Wednesday night during the school year where we're reaching kids who have no other church connection or our VBS in the summer, which does the same kind of thing. And this year we had over 100 kids who sang about and heard the message of Christ. All you need to do is see those things to visibly see the kingdom of God advancing. Little Lamb Preschool touches lives and changes hearts for eternity as they educate children in a Christian atmosphere, telling them about the love of Jesus. And though many of those kids have no church home, they think of us as their church. And they see me and Jim both as their pastors, and their parents know that. Again, our youth ministry is growing every year thanks uh, uh, to the hard work of Jim and the prayers of many people. Last year's frenzy, that all-night activity that we saw in the video this morning, it kicks off the kids' summer. They needed one bus, one school bus last year. This year they needed two. The kids come, and they come back again. And then there are life groups, small but growing Sunday school. This year begins our mops ministry. And there are countless of other things which happen each week, unplanned and uncoordinated, like what happened with Velma, what she testified to which indicate a healthy, growing church which God is using to advance his kingdom. And there is absolutely no doubt that we are a target and that Satan has set his sight 
on destroying us. Now, we're not in the battle alone, certainly. We have friends, and God is always available to us. Good books like Firestorm and others can help us, and the good book itself, the Bible, contains uh, a wealth of wisdom for our life in general and everything we need to live this life and to stand against the wiles of the devil. And it's to that book that we're going to turn this morning to the Word of God. We're going to look once again, and we're going to see there a church that is in many ways just like this church. And like this church, it had become a target for the enemy. The church we're going to look at this morning is the one we've been talking about throughout our summer, the Philippian church. So I want to ask you to join me once again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And of course, we'll have the information up on the screen. Now, I have not made mention of this before as we've been making our way through this book, but some commentators think the Philippian church was in a significant state of division and that's the reason that Paul wrote this letter, uh, was to address those divisions. And, and, and they point to his call for unity and like-mindedness in chapter 2 as evidence that such was lacking. Their reason this way, uh, he's telling them to be united, so they must not have been united. Well, I don't agree. Uh, at least I don't think there was any serious divisions there. And I think that for several reasons. First, the call for unity and uh, putting others before ourselves is always appropriate. As the old saying goes, we need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. Often we need to be called back to the big picture so we don't get lost in the smaller details. So too is the call towards Christian maturity that comes in chapter 3. None of us... Not you or me, not one person in this building has arrived yet. We all need to continue growing in our faith. And then the book of Philippians itself doesn't read like the letter to the Corinthians, which was in a true state of division and on the very brink of a firestorm itself. People there had uh, already taken up sides, some preferring one Bible teacher and others championing their favorite, and the church was in a tremendous disarray unlike the Philippian church, who, as we will see, uh, sent help to Paul and who Paul regarded as a partner in the gospel. In fact, the only mention of a division in the church at Philippi doesn't come until the very end of the letter, just about the very end of it, and is almost seemingly unimportant. It's almost mentioned almost in passing. Uh, Paul is bringing his thoughts uh, uh, to them, to their conclusion. And it involves two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, whom we'll briefly visit at another time, who needed encouragement to get along. But I have to tell you, I think that's the point. You see, Paul says elsewhere, we are not unaware of Satan's strategy. And like those churches talked about in that book, Firestorm, Satan's attacks almost always begin small. He, he tries to get a foot in the door or even just a toehold. And like the camel putting his nose under the tent, if you don't deal with it, 
Soon the whole camel is inside the tent, and you're left out in the cold. Paul sees something going on which disturbs him. The symptom is Yodia and Syntyche's quarrel, which we just mentioned. But Paul understands that behind that seemingly small thing looms the dark form of the devil. Now the passage we're going to look at tells us how Paul deals with that. Now I have to tell you, this is not a compendium on battles, tactics, which we can use to fight our spiritual battles. Rather, what we're going to see here is the structure that God has put into place because we are in such a conflict. So let's see if we can understand what's happening. Paul has just finished warning the Philippians not to take the first step down the low road, that of complaining and arguing, which would damage the unity of the church. And he's also encouraged them to be joyful, even though Paul himself was facing a possible death sentence. And then in verse 19, he tells them of his intention to send Timothy to them, which would have almost certainly taken them by surprise for reasons we'll look at shortly. Paul tells them, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. It sounds as though Paul wants some good news about his friends in Philippi and he's sending Timothy there to get it but verse 20 reveals Paul's real motive. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. You see, Paul's concerned about the Philippians, so he intends to send Timothy because Timothy will care for them. Again, Paul doesn't have a clear knowledge of what the future holds when he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy. It's his way of saying, if the Lord wills. Paul's telling him what he plans on doing, but he knows that might be overruled. And there's a certain urgency about Paul's plans here. He wants to send Timothy soon. He says, and he says that both here and in verse 23, but it's not an emergency. We see that in verse 23 when Paul says, I hope therefore to send him, that is Timothy, as soon as I see how things go with me. You know, we're in an emergency. Knowing the character of Paul, he no doubt would have sent Timothy immediately. The situation was urgent, but it wasn't dire. Almost certainly Paul was waiting to see whether he would be sentenced to death or whether he would be set free before he sent Timothy. And from verse 24, we know Paul would have gone with him then if he could. So Paul needed Timothy at his uh, side right then, and he needed him for several reasons. That's why he's not sending him right away. The most basic service that Timothy had been providing, at least up until the uh, arrival of Epaphroditus, uh, who we'll look at soon, was to care for the apostles' basic needs. You see, the Roman state did not spend money on prisoners, and unless you had friends to care for your needs, you were in a world of trouble. And Timothy was Paul's friend in that matter. But Paul was also a pastor, and with a pastor's heart. And he was ministering to people who he had led to Christ while he was in prison. And Timothy was able to do things for these people, which Paul, because he was a prisoner, could not do. So surely Timothy had become 
Paul's feet in his hands in this situation. So he didn't send him immediately because of that. And finally, if Paul were about to depart from this world, he wanted to make sure Timothy was fully trained and he would continue that instruction. Well, he would continue it right up until his death as long as he could. So now we have some idea of Paul's strategy to combat Satan's attack on his friends. It was an urgent situation, and if Paul allowed, he would, as soon as he could, send Timothy to help him. And when we understand Timothy's character better, we understand why Paul wanted to send him. Paul's already told us, and of course, uh, told them, and of course, us, uh, that he had no one else like him. Whatever other companions Paul may have had with him right then, we don't know if there were any others with Paul, uh, with Paul right then, anyone else but Timothy. None of them were yet as ready for such an assignment. But Timothy was, and verses 21 and 22 say this, For everyone looks out for their own interests, not of those of Jesus Christ, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. It is a genuine follower of Christ who looks out for other people, putting them ahead of himself or herself. And as Timothy had the same heart as Paul, that's why he refers to him as a son and as one who served with him in the work of the gospel. What's more, the Philippians already knew Timothy. He had been with Paul and Silas at the founding of the church in Acts 10, and uh, he was back there again in Acts 20. And so the Philippians knew who Timothy was, and he knew what kind of man he was. So Paul's strategy was, knowing his friends were being targeted by the enemy, was to, as soon as he could, send Timothy, a man with a pastor's heart, to care for them and to love them. That was the first thing he thought about doing. The second thing was kind of like it. He made up his mind to send back to the Philippians their messenger, Epaphroditus. Verse 25 tells us of that decision, and it introduces us to the man. And Paul writes there, But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. So these verses that we're looking at right now and the few which follow, they're the only references in the scriptures to Epaphroditus. Uh, What we know about him we learn from these verses here. And Paul uses four terms to describe him. He calls him my brother, a reference to the brotherhood and sisterhood of the faith. And as such, it would apply really to any believer. But then Paul calls him my co-worker, which puts him on a kind of a par with Paul. At least they were laboring in the same mission field. He was a worker for the kingdom of God. And Epaphroditus probably worked with Paul when Paul was in Philippi establishing the church and then again at other visits. And he was working with him while Paul was in prison. And then Paul calls him a fellow soldier. Paul, Paul viewed himself as a soldier for Christ, and he thought of Epaphroditus that way too. And you know, a soldier, unlike a worker, is under bond to his commander, which is, of course, here, Jesus Christ. There's a higher level of commitment here. And again, this relationship precedes what he's presently writing. 
finally, he refers to Epaphroditus as your messenger, meaning someone sent from that church to Paul. And so Epaphroditus brought a monetary gift to Paul. We learn about that gift in chapter 4. And he was also supposed to stay there and help Paul in any way that he could, which lets us know the Philippian church was a mature and unified body of believers, which Paul knew was being targeted by the enemy. That's why he was going to send Timothy when he could, and that's why Paul had made up his mind to send Epaphroditus back immediately. Epaphroditus was either already on his way back while Paul was writing this letter, or he was the one who took that letter uh, of Paul's to them. Verses 26 and 27 tell us a little bit more about it. For he, Epaphroditus, longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only him, but me also to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. It's not until verse 30 that we learn what brought this illness, which almost killed Epaphroditus. It says there, because he almost died in the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. There's no condemnation of the Philippians here. The Greek simply reads, he risked his life to complete your service to me. See, they sent Epaphroditus to Paul to help him, and he almost died trying to fulfill his duty. Epaphroditus was a good guy. He he wasn't a pastor or, or full-time missionary. He might have become one later. We don't know. We just don't know anything else about him. What we do know is this. He was a committed follower of Jesus Christ, a member of the church at Philippi, who by his life and actions advanced the kingdom of God. And we know the church chose him to take their gift to Paul and to stay and to help Paul in his time of need. He was a kind of a short-term missionary. And we also know, and we just read it, that Epaphroditus loved his church. And he really missed them. And and he was distressed for them because they'd heard he had been deathly ill. And they were worried about him. And he really cared about them. And so Paul did not send him back because he was homesick or because he was distressed that his friends were worried about him. It's a cursory reading of verse 28 might think, make you think. After mentioning those two things, Paul writes in 28, Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and have less anxiety. See, Epaphroditus' love for his home church and his concern for their worries made Paul all the more eager to send him back. Paul would have been eager to send him back in any case. So Paul himself would have less anxiety over the state of the Philippian church. Epaphroditus' longing and concern just added to Paul's decision to send him home. And then verse 29, Paul tells us how we ought to view someone like him. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. You see, people like that are one of God's best gifts to the church. 
So what's Paul's strategy here to combat Satan as the enemy targets this solid church in Philippi? Well, he wants to send to them a man with a pastor's heart who will care for them and put their needs in front of his own. And he's already sent back Epaphroditus as a committed follower of Jesus who loves that church and serves God with his whole heart. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's sending reinforcements. He's beefing up the defense. He's strengthening the offense. No doubt there was already a pastor in that church, but he might have been young, still learning and growing. Paul wanted to send someone who was proven to come alongside of him, to help him, to help his people. Surely there were other people in that church like Epaphroditus, in the quality of that man. He was no doubt their best guy. That's why they sent him in the first place. Paul wanted him where he could be best used, and that was back in Philippi. Now maybe that doesn't seem like much of a strategy to you. But Paul saw it as a valuable and necessary addition to the truth of God's word, which he was writing to them. And you understand, don't you? God has built those very things into the structure of every local church. He's given us pastors, men who have pastors' hearts, who ought to love God's people and put their interests ahead of his own. And he has called other people and planted them right where they are in that church. Not as pastors, but as committed followers of Jesus Christ who will serve their church and love them deeply. As a pastor, I can tell you those people make the church. And without them, we're simply dead in the water. Nothing that I or any other pastor can do will take the place of that kind of commitment. And here at Y Bible Church, we have many people like that. We really are truly blessed by our God. And as a pastor, I can tell you, as a pastor, I'm not equal to the job. None of us really are. Paul wasn't. Timothy wasn't. Only Christ was all that a pastor ever should be. And the rest of us, we're all both. God has called us, and in that calling, he's changed us. He's touched our hearts, and he's caused us to love his people, almost so that we can't help it. If you were to ask me if all pastors love their people, I'd have to tell you no. Not all of them do. Some, I suspect, were never called by God in the first place, and others may have let that love die on the vine. And some have just plain been hurt by the very people they sought to serve and have pulled their wings back in, if you will. Yet most pastors really do love the people. They love those in the church that they serve. You know, I, I have to tell you something. I, I really, I always blush 
when they tell you that they love you because I know how small I really am. I know how unworthy I am to the name the name of Christ. And I figure <laughs> that you're sitting there thinking, how can he say he loves me when he doesn't really know me? All I can tell you is it's true. Last week, there was a man here who isn't here often. He comes whenever he can, and he said to me, one of the reasons I like it here is, as he put it, the spiritual connection that he feels between the pastor and the people here. I don't know how to explain that to you. I just know it is. I think once you've experienced it, you recognize it when you see it. And I think it's easy enough, like all good things, to take for granted. This pastor's heart is a real thing. It's like the love that any Christian might feel toward a person whom they've never met, but whom he or she has been praying for. Something happens in our heart, and we can't explain it. But it's there, and it's real. And there are people in our Tuesday night prayer meeting who know exactly what I'm talking about here. Pray for someone you've never met and realize you love that person. And if you ever see them, you'll know them. And I think they'll know you. There is a spiritual realm we're a part of. A place where faith and life and light dwell. A place where we are not quite strangers. A place where we're becoming more and more at home. At. It's real. It, it's beautiful. It's powerful. And this church is a concrete expression of that. And Satan wants to destroy all of that in any church where it lives. We are in his sights. I, I don't know how he's going to attack us or when. And no, I don't see anything happening. It's not that I'm preaching this because I see if I ever saw something happening, I might be having a conversation with you first. But I know he has attacked. And I know he will again. I... needs your prayers. The elders and deacons need your prayers. And the church needs you. It needs you to commit all of your heart to follow Christ and to love those around you. It's God's structure. He put it into place to defeat the wiles of the devil. It's his church, which the gates of hell cannot prevail against. All the glory goes to God. And to God be Would you pray? Thank you for being our God.
giving us your word, for providing for us in every way, and past the ways we imagine and understand. Thank you for that work which you're doing in us, changing us, sinful people that we are, to become more and more like Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord and Savior.